morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John. If you have your Scripture journal, uh, we have some more of those. We ran out last week. We did get some more, so if you would like one, we can get some of our leaders that will be glad to get those. If you would like one, raise your hand if you're a guest. We're walking through the Gospel of John, and we are making sure we're, we're taking uh, several months as we get through, as we look at the life of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to continue that. There was an article in the Washington Times from April of 2014 about a, a current Democratic presidential candidate open, and, and opens with this statement. It names the candidate. And he said, it's their work for more gun control along with their anti-smoking and healthy eating campaigns that have won them God's favor and a sure spot behind the pearly gates. Their exact words made in context of discussing their smoking cessation and the, and the anti-obesity pushes as well as their uh, concerted crackdowns on private gun ownership to the New York Times were, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven... I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now hear me, I, this is by no means a political sermon. I am not touching that with a 39 and a half foot pole right now. Okay? <laughs> but I do want us to understand as we continue in the gospel of John as we step into the next chapter that we're looking at, I couldn't help but, under, but remember this article as it came, across my, it came across my news feed several weeks back. And my mind immediately went to the text that we're looking at this morning. And though many of us may not be as bold to make the, the declaration that this politician makes, when asked why we should be allowed into heaven, the, one of the number one leading answers is, I hope and believe that I've been good enough. I hope and believe that I have been good enough. And so that begs the question, how good is good enough? Because we will so often, we think, we hope, we're trying to figure this out. We're trying our best to find out how do we get there. And we think and we hope and we believe maybe it's about what we do. What Jesus has come to tell us is that there's nothing we can do. I quoted H.B. Charles, pastor of, of a church down in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, a couple weeks ago. And I want to remind you of this quote, and we're going to talk about the first half of this quote. It says, no one is beyond the need for God's grace, nor the reach of God's grace. No one is beyond the need for God's grace, nor the reach of God's grace. This morning, I want to talk about the truth that there is no one that is beyond the need of the grace of God. And we're going to see that in this encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus. We, we, you may have heard of him before, but I want to talk about that a little bit more. But before we do that, I want you to understand the takeaway this morning. That is this. Jesus declares new birth 
as the requirement for kingdom entrance. What we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus has declared one requirement and one requirement only to get into the kingdom of God. And it's not going to be our good life. It's not going to be our good works. It is going to be something that we cannot do on our own. And that is a new birth. And we need to see our need to, to experience this new birth, but also to live the life that that birth has given us. Look at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to break this passage down because we're going to be covering 20, 21 verses. So I wanted to just dive right in to what we're going to be looking at. Look at John chapter 3, verse, 21, uh, verse 1. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So what, we're, what we have here is we're introduced to this character called Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, a couple things about him is, number one, he was a Pharisee meaning he was a member of about the 6,000 Pharisees who lived throughout Israel, and the Pharisees were men who were known for their extreme commitment to the authority of Scripture, obeying the law of Moses, and teaching others to do the same. And Nicodemus is one of those 6,000 people, so one of those 6,000 Israelites that are going throughout the people of Israel that would lead and teach them. And Nicodemus is now coming to Jesus. We know that he was not only one of 6,000 Pharisees, he was also one of the 70 Sanhedrin. It says that he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the ruling Jewish council. And we know that that was the group of 70. They were kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. As people were debating and talking about the law and they were trying to figure out how it is that they're supposed to live, if there ever came a point where there was a debate and a discussion that could not be settled amongst them, they would come to the, the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin would determine based on their interpretation of God's word and would, they would say this or that. They would, they would make the judgment. So you could easily say Nicodemus was kind of a big deal. He was a bi it was a big deal for him to step out and to have this conversation. And we know, based on the report, in, on verse 2, it says he came to Jesus at night. Now, some people want to blow that up and say, well, see, he was just ashamed that, 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 that people would know that he was going to talk to Jesus. Now, that may be true. That very well may be true because the Pharisees did not like what Jesus was doing. And to be one that would go and have a conversation and not just condemning Jesus right on the spot would run the risk. But I also believe there's a possibility that Nicodemus may have really been questioning what was going on. As a member of the Sanhedrin, as a member of the Pharisees, he knew Scripture. And he knew the prophecies of the Messiah. And they were seeking and searching for the Messiah just as much, as it, more than anyone else. And there's a possibility maybe he was just wanting some time to talk without interruption. you got to understand, Jesus was also a very busy guy. Jesus was one that was performing miracles. People were coming to him from morning till evening. And maybe Nicodemus just wanted an audience with Jesus to have just one-on-one -on -one moment. So he could just ask the question that's been eating at him. And he's and he comes to him and he says, Rabbi. He acknowledges Jesus as a teacher. 
a, a respected teacher nonetheless. To be called a rabbi was to be one of the leading teachers of that time. And Jesus treats, uh, Nicodemus treats Jesus with respect that many other Pharisees didn't. And he came and he calls him rabbi. And with his word, with his words, Nicodemus is acknowledging that Jesus is his equal. He was also a rabbi. He had disciples. And for Nicodemus to, say, to call Jesus rabbi was to say, you also are one of great intellect. You are also one of great understanding of this. There, and, he, and he says, you are, have to be from God. You are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. I believe Nicodemus was coming because there was something missing in him. There was something that was still yearning. Even as a member of the Pharisees, even as a member of the Sanhedrin, there was something that was not quite right there. And he says, and he, he goes to Jesus hoping that he may find out what that is. That this wasn't what, he's, what he needed, and Jesus knew that. And I love how Jesus interacts with us. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't find out where. He knows exactly where we're at. Right? Later on, we see another account that we're going to get to in a couple weeks where he takes time with that. But with Nicodemus, as a teacher of the Pharisees, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he pulls no punches. He says, look, if you're coming to me for another teaching, it's not going to happen. He says, look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is sitting there going, wait a minute, we haven't even taught, I haven't even asked my question. And Jesus is going, no, it's okay, I already know what it is, and I know what your greatest need is. And for us, what we see Jesus here, we see Jesus declaring that there is something greater than our works, our goodness, anything we could do that will grant us entrance into the kingdom of God. And he says that this is the new birth. You see, Nicodemus didn't need a better teacher. He needed a new Savior. And for us to understand, for us to truly understand this new birth and what this new birth encompasses, we have to start right there. We have to recognize Jesus rightly. To recognize Jesus rightly, we have to see him as Savior rather than teacher. We have to see Jesus as our Savior rather than just our teacher. Jesus came not to teach us good morals. He came not to show us something better to do because we weren't doing it right to begin with. He pulls no punches and he goes straight for the knockout of religion by establishing the relationship by saying, you have to be born again. John MacArthur says this in his commentary on this passage. It says, Jesus was telling him that entrance to God's salvation was not a matter of adding something to all his efforts, not topping off his religious devotion, but rather canceling everything and starting all over again. We need to understand that good works does not give birth to new life. We talked about that last week. We talked about the new life, the newness of life that Jesus had come to establish. And that comes only by one way and one way alone, according to Jesus. And that is through a new birth. And that is not found in good works, or else Jesus would just need to be a good teacher. He would just need to teach us some new, new habits. No, he comes and says, no, there's nothing you can do. You need a new Savior. 
How does this new birth come about? We'll see, we'll see that in a minute. We're going to look at that in just a minute of the next couple of verses. But I want, us to continue, I want us to solidify this teaching because we have, before anything else, we have to recognize Jesus rightly in order for us to move any way forward in this walk with him. If we don't recognize who Jesus is, really, is truly meant to be, then we're going to be coming at it from the wrong angle and we'll never get it right on our own. We have to recognize him as Savior, and Jesus solidifies that. Look down at verse number 9. Nicodemus and Jesus converse back and forth about this new birth. Finally, Nicodemus just says, How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? See, Nicodemus wasn't getting it, and he was one of the top teachers. And that that shows us we need more than a teacher. But there was one person that would get it. There was only one person for us to go enter into the kingdom of God. For us to understand what it means to step in to this salvation. It was the Son of Man. Look at verse 13. It says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. The only one who who has seen the kingdom of God is the Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' primary self-proclaimed titles with roots in the Messianic prophecies, by the way. Jesus declares himself as the Son of Man to a Pharisee, to a member of the Sanhedrin, and he says, this is the only way to recognize me as the Son of Man. And what does he say the Son of Man has come to do? Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Now, Jesus goes back, as, as Jesus is encountering what Jesus is doing, he refers back to a story that Nicodemus is very familiar with. Nicodemus is very familiar with the story of what Jesus just reminded him, that which is found in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. You can write that down and go back and read that if you want later on. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, it is the account of the people and the bronze serpent. The bronze serpent was was a time when the people were in the wilderness. They were wandering because they had disobeyed God. Remember that. That's key to it. So it's remembering. They disobeyed God. They grumbled. They would not trust. They didn't put their hope in there. And Jesus and God, because of that, made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And guess what they're doing? They're grumbling because they're having to wander. They're beginning to get impatient. They get impatient and they begin, to move, they begin to talk back against God and against Moses, God's spokesman. And they begin to start saying, why have you brought us out here? We would have been better off in Egypt. We want to go back. And they begin grumbling and murmuring. And finally, God is so displeased that he sends snakes into the camp. And they start biting him. And every time they were bitten by this venomous snake, people were dying. Just like that. Snakes come. I mean, how would you like to be in that, that camp? Nope. Not me. I'm good, I'm done, I'm out. Like you wake up and there's a viper right there who's just saying, hello, <laughs> no. And they're coming and they come into the camp and people are dying left and right until finally they come and they say, God, uh, they say, Moses, we, we have sinned against God and we've sinned against you. Please, please ask God to deliver us from this. And this is what God does. 
God gives them the command to, take, to make a bronze serpent and to lift it up onto a pole for the whole camp to see. So that people, when people were bitten by a snake, that they would turn their eyes and look to the bronze serpent and they would be healed. Now what's happening in that story? What's taking place in that? Well, one, first off, we see God. We, we go, well, God, you're, you're telling them to, to make a graven image. What, you just told them not to do that. No, no, catch what's happening. This is a forepicture of what is to come. Because who else is lifted up in Scripture? Who else is lifted up and we are called to command and we're commanded to turn our eyes to, to look to, and be delivered from? The only way the people were to be delivered and to be redeemed and to be healed was by looking not just at the at the thing that caused them pain, but but was to be confronted with the very reason that they were in pain to begin with. This wasn't a cruel trick by God saying, all right, well, if you're going to backtalk me, then here's, here's what you got to do. No, he made them come face to face with the very reason and the very source that all their pain was coming from. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus the same exact thing. Nicodemus is hoping that he can find out from this good teacher another thing to do in his life. And Jesus says, no, there is nothing you can do except look to the Son of Man who would one day be lifted up on a cross. Nicodemus didn't know what was getting ready to happen, but we as, as readers of the account know exactly who John is talking about. We know exactly who Jesus is referring to. Salvation is birthed by God's grace, not our goodness. We are all in the wilderness, in this wilderness of God's judgment for us, dying of the deadly poison of sin. That will cost us our very lives. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6. What does he say? What does he say? He says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. We are all dying of this disease called sin. But thanks be to God that Jesus became our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that when we look to the lifted Savior, we're not talking about lifting him up in praise, though y'all did that excellent earlier on. We're not talking about singing songs about that. We're talking about looking at our crucified Savior. Not a good teacher. For us to see and to enter the kingdom of heaven, to experience and understand this new birth, we have to first recognize Jesus as Savior, not just as our teacher. But we don't just recognize him as our Savior. We need to relate to him. And there's only, a, there's only one way that we can do that. To relate to Jesus rightly, we have to be born of the Spirit rather than the flesh. To relate to Jesus rightly, we must be born of the Spirit rather than the flesh. Look at verse 4. It says, How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Nicodemus is trying his best to figure this out. And he says, Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's wombs to be born. And some of you mothers go and praise Jesus. Thank you. Right? That was hard enough the first time. Right? That's something to make grown men faint. And Nicodemus is like, how does this work? What is it, what, what is this, what's happening here? I don't get this. How in the world can I be born again? And he says, you're thinking of the wrong birth. Jesus says, 
verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. How do we relate to Jesus rightly? Well, we need to understand that first off, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh. All of us are flesh. Show of hands, real quick. How many of us have ever been born? Okay, come on. Everybody should be going, yep, that was me. Yep, you've been born, right? All of us have been born. We are all part of this flesh. We were born of flesh. And can I just say that this flesh is what sets us apart from all other creation. This flesh is what sets us apart. We are made in the image of God. Praise God, because there's no one else that could walk and have the relationship with Jesus than we could. He has made us in his image. He has made us in his likeness. And we, as created beings, are born of flesh. But this flesh is also what got us in major trouble. This flesh, it's the sin that dwells in this flesh that has caused us to be separated. And there's no good work that we could do to right the wrong that this flesh has done. Because of sin, this flesh is now corrupt. We can't relate to God or we, and we can't relate to others. Catch that. To relate to Jesus rightly, we have to be born of the Spirit. Why? Because being born of the flesh, we can't relate to anyone rightly, let alone Jesus Christ. You ever get in that spat and argument? If they just listen to me, right? We all know. Ladies, you're right. We're wrong. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going I'm to get in trouble here. We, you ever done that? You ever experienced that? If they would just do, if they would just see it from my point of view, if they would just understand what I'm trying to do, and we become the center focus, which was never God's intent. We're corrupt. We have sinful desires. What did we say last week? That we don't need a little remodeling. We need a complete redo. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So, so if, if, all of us are the, if all of us are born of flesh, and that's not good enough, then there's got to be something else. And he lays it out. He says, first, the water. Now, this is not making baptism. Some people have used this to make baptism necessary for salvation. I do not believe that is what, John's, what Jesus' intention is here. And I'll give, you, I'll give you scripture to back that, that up. We need to understand that in the Old Testament, prophets often described a time coming when the Spirit of God would be poured out generously on all people. Look at Isaiah and Joel. And sometimes this is described as water being poured out. Look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. It says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So we have, the, we have this connection there, the understanding that the Spirit, to say that we need to be born of water and born of Spirit, can, all, can easily mean that we, he's, he's, he's trying to emphasize something. When there's a redundancy there, when there's something repeated there, there's, a, there's an emphasis there for us to understand that this spiritual baptism, that this spiritual birth must come from Him and not from us, and that He is the one that pours out this water on the thirsty land and pours out the Spirit on our thirsty souls. But I also believe Nicodemus also, he probably thought of John the Baptist and his baptism. 
which Matthew records as this. He says, I baptize you. This is, this is John the Baptist speaking in, another, in one of the other gospel accounts. I baptize you with water for repentance. Everybody say repentance. If there's a word that we need to grasp onto, it is the word repentance. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am, no, I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. But I, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance. You see, to relate to Jesus rightly, we have to be born of water, which means we have to be born out of a heartbeat of repentance. I believe before anything else, we start with repenting of our sins. The new birth begins when we are birthed through the water of repentance, when God pours out His spiritual water and gives, gives life to our souls. We see our need to repent. We're not going to try to do better to get in. Rather, we're going to repent of all of our shortcomings that keeps us out. And to relate to Jesus rightly, we have to be born of the Spirit. We have to carry the Spirit of repentance. It is essential. He says be bo to, to be born, to enter the kingdom of God, uh, you cannot enter unless you're born of water. But he says, and the Spirit. So what is the Spirit's part in this? The Spirit's part is to convict us of our sin and impart grace on us. As he convicts us of our sins and we see where we have fallen short and we repent of those, which repentance is simply turning away from our sin and pursuing Jesus. It's not just saying we're sorry for what we've done. It's not just turning away from those things. It is turning away from those things and following after Jesus. It's following him as king. I just had a chance to talk with, an eight, with one of our eight-year-olds eight -year in our children's ministry. And the beautiful thing is when they catch this. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I started talking about repentance, and she looked at me, and I was like, so do you understand what that means? And she says, she says no. And I said, that's okay. It's kind of a bigger, it's, more, it's a bigger church word. I said, repentance is simply this, turning a walking away from what we've done wrong and walking towards the one who's done it right. Not Catch that. Catch what we just said. We're not walking away from what we've done wrong in order to walk in something we're supposed to do right. We, turn, we walk away from what we have done wrong and we walk towards the one who has done right. And we pursue, we love, we obey Jesus. That's repentance. And can I just tell you, you never stop repenting. We never stop repenting. We never get to the point where we say we have nothing else to return away from. We're following Jesus perfectly. We live a life of repentance, and the Spirit brings and imparts grace so that we can repent. And as we repent, catch what the Spirit does. It doesn't come to condemn us, but rather to set us free, not only from the guilt and punishment, but also the power of sin. It sets us free from the power of sin. Listen to Paul's words. Write Rome, I would encourage you, write Romans 8, 1 through 6 down. It's going to be on the screens. We're going to read it. We're going to read it together. But, but you, you, this, if there's ever a time where you need to be set free and you need to remember God's promise, understand this promise. Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. That son of man that was lifted up, he wasn't just lifted up for us to acknowledge that, that it was our sin that put us there. He was lifted up so that we could be set free in him from the law of sin and from the law of death. For God has, has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. There's that flesh again. All of us are guilty of that. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For, the set, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. See, to relate to Jesus rightly, we must be born of the Spirit. And what has the Spirit done? The Spirit has set us free so that we can walk in newness of life. Nothing we could do, nothing we could even dream of doing, can do what the Spirit has already done. The law measures our good, and we all fall way short. The work of the Spirit imparts Jesus' grace and says, it's not what you do, it's what I have done. Walk in what I have done. You ever showed up at a job? You ever showed up to do something or have a task that you need to do just to show up and realize it's already done? Man, this was easy, right? I, this, I, I, I can be part of this job, right? Can I just tell you that's exactly what the Christian life is about? We don't wake up every morning, so, okay, God, what do I have to do? What do I need to do to make sure I'm getting in this? What do, you know, we, we don't need to revert back to what we've, what we've done. We wake up every morning, we say, Jesus, the job's already done. I don't have to do any work today. I just get to spend my day with you. Now, yes, you do need to show up at work if you've got a job. Go to work tomorrow, people, please. Don't go to and say, well, my pastor said that we don't have to. I don't have to work. No, that's not, we don't have to work to get into the kingdom of God anymore. Jesus has done the work for us. And we relate to him by walking in the Spirit. He says that this work of the Spirit is as mysterious as the wind. Look at what he says in verse, in verse 8. He says, the wind blows where, wherever it pleases, you hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, anyone ever see the wind? Anybody ever say, I've seen the wind. We've seen the effects of the wind, right? Even the idea, some people have even said, well, I've seen the wind. I've seen the wind as the fog rolls in, you know, off the lake or something. No, you're seeing the wind affect the clouds that are on, but it's, you're still not seeing the wind. We see the effects, but we don't see it. But Jesus says the Spirit moves in the very same way. We don't see it coming. We don't see what's happening. All we know is that there's something different. 
there's, an exp- there's something that we're experiencing now that is different than the way we lived. When the Spirit moves in our lives, the wind gives movement, and so does the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is meant to give movement, movement to its people so they would go and live different than the world that is out there among us right now. And the only way we can do that is by being moved by the Spirit of God. We don't move ourselves, the Spirit moves us. We have to be completely surrendered and be willing to say, God, this is your day, it's not mine. This is your life, it's not mine. How do you want me to live for you today? Move me where you want me to move. And we have to understand, though, the person of the flesh doesn't understand these movements. And doesn't even realize that they may be hindering the movement of God. Can I challenge us? Can I challenge us to relate to Jesus rightly? And walk in the Spirit? We don't need to let our traditions. We don't need to let our routines. We don't need to let our preferences, our status quo, be a hindrance of the Spirit. He wants to give new life and it starts with this new birth. You see, we recognize Jesus as Savior. We relate to, to him by, by being born of the Spirit. But I believe there's one other thing that, w- that he wants us to catch, and that is this. He wants us to reflect him. We've recognized him, we've related to him, but he wants us to reflect him. And to reflect Jesus rightly, we seek to get, live a gracious life over a good life. Here's what I mean by that. Verse 1 through 15 is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Verse 16 through 21 is really John's commentary on the conversation. After experiences, after seeing, after, after seeing what this looks like, John comes back and gives some commentary. And it starts with the most well-known, the most popular verse. Now, if I was to ask you, you could, I guarantee you this room, majority in this room could quote it right off the top of their head. That is John 3, 16. For God... So love the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now catch what's happening here. In order for us to reflect Jesus, we have to see this gracious life by, by looking at the example of what God has come, in, come to do. And we see in verse 16, first, God gives The grace of God is a giving grace. It says, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his his one and only son. This gift, this greatest expression of love that we could ever know is a selfless act of giving. It was out of a love for his creation and for his people that he would come and give his son so that those who would believe in the person and work of Jesus would have the gift of life. But he doesn't just give, he also sends. Look at verse 17. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God gives, and then God sends. He sent Jesus into the world for the sole purpose of saving sinners. He didn't come to teach better morals or do some amazing signs. He came to save sinners. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came with one intention and one intention only. 
and that was to offer salvation to anyone and everyone that would believe he is the Son of God lifted up in our place and surrender their lives to follow him. Remember what belief is. Don't forget what we started this whole series with is the understanding that we are not just believing in a head knowledge, we are living a belief by trusting and actively following. But that is only possible by the gift, the gracious gift of Jesus to die in your place and in my place. Without that gift, without a God who gives, I am lost and still dead in my sins. Without the gift of grace through Jesus Christ, I am hopelessly trying to do it on my own. Without the gift of grace, I may, some of us may be at the end point saying there is absolutely no hope whatsoever. But can I challenge you right here? Some of us, without the gift of grace, would be completely content with the life that we're living right now. And that's more scary than anything else. That we would be willing to say, well, God, we've got it good enough. We'll be okay. No, he says, look, he gave because there was nothing we could do. We needed a savior rather than a teacher. And just as he has given to us, we are now called to go and reflect that to others. We reflect this life. Just as Jesus was sent into this world, we are now sent to go. Following the example of God, we give and we go. Verse 18 says that there that. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's only Son. See, we're all condemned. The flesh has been condemned. All of us are part of the flesh. And the only way we escape that condemnation is by trusting and and recognizing Jesus for who he is and relating to him by experiencing the new birth through the Spirit. But how does that happen? Well, first off, let me just tell you, God is not hinging salvation on our obedience. Understand that. God's not hinging everything on whether or not we're going to obey. I believe and trust in the sovereignty of God enough that if I don't walk in obedience, God will bring someone else to bring about his good plan. But can I tell you something? I will stand and give an account for my disobedience. I will stand and give an account for what God has commanded me to do and me not doing it. It'd be easy for some of us. We've been, and you say, well, I've been doing this for 50, 60, 70 years. Some of you maybe say, well, I just started out on this. I've been doing this for, for five or six months, five or six days even. You know, I, I, got, I, need, I need some time to figure it No, God's given us everything we need. And whether you're just starting out in this journey or you're coming to the end of this journey, we are called to walk, to go, and to give just as God did us. Because without it, there are people that will continue to stand condemned already because they did not believe. Here's the interesting thing about, the, about our belief. Romans 10 tells us this. It says, how can we then, how, will, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So there's that non-belief. There's that condemnation. But look at what he says next. And how are they to believe in him uh, to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone 
preaching. You say, well, Henry, that's your job. No, this is not talking about preaching from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. We are all called to preach and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We, every single one of us have the ability and the opportunity and most importantly, the command to go out and to relate not just to Jesus rightly, but relate to this world through reflecting Jesus rightly. And that's how people will be changed. It's not going to come through your elders at this church. It's not going to come through your Sunday school teachers and your small group leaders. It's not going to come through your deacons. It's going to come through every one of us who will willingly say, God gave and sent, I am, I am giving and I am going. And we do that at our work. We do that with our family. We do that with our friends. We do that when no one else is looking. We reflect Jesus. And he says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? How are they to preach unless they are sent? Guess what? Jesus is sending us into this world to relate to him and to point others to him. Verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I want to I want to change, I want to tweak our takeaway that we started with by simply saying this. We're going to add something to it. We said Jesus declares new birth as the requirement for kingdom entrance. But understand this, Jesus also declares new birth as the reason for kingdom living. It is the requirement for us to enter into the kingdom. But it is also the reason that we live for him every day. Why? Because he's given us new life. Dear Christian, you have been granted and given new life. Now walk in a life that is graciously reflecting the love of Jesus. For the, those who have never put their hope and trust in him, the only way we enter the kingdom of God is by believing and repenting, repenting of our sin and trusting and believing in Jesus. There's no good work that you will ever do. This politician we start with, he is dead wrong. And my fear is that he will be, his, his eyes will be open when it's too late. May that not be so of anyone in this room today. You have been offered life today. How? Because all we have to do is repent of our sins and, and believe, decide to follow him for the rest of our lives. That's a big task. Yeah, guess what? It's an able task because it's not about what he's taught us. It's about what he's done for us. And so we live for him day in, day out. You fall, you get up, you follow him. You fail, you get up, you follow him. You beat yourself up. Oh, I should have said that. Guess what? You'll have another day, Lord willing, by the grace of God. And you decide and you, get, you make that day the day that you will follow him wholeheartedly. But it all comes not by our goodness, but by what Jesus has done. I believe Nicodemus, it's not the only time we hear of Nicodemus. The rest of Nicodemus' story later on in this gospel, we'll get to it when we look at John chapter 7. But the Pharisees try to have Jesus arrested, and Nicodemus, oddly enough, is the one not sure about the Pharisees anymore. After the Son of Man had been lifted up and he was crucified, there were two guys who asked for Jesus' body to bury him. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And can I just say, Nicodemus, as a member of Sanhedrin, he was willing to not be good by touching a dead body, which would have made him unclean. I don't know what happened 
in Nicodemus. We don't have the account in Scripture. It's not found in Scripture, but I believe something within me says that Nicodemus was one of the 500 people that Jesus showed himself to. And I believe Nicodemus finally recognized Jesus as Savior, was born of the Spirit, and sought to live a gracious life from that point forward. The question is, how about you? Is it your goodness or is it God's grace? It's only found through Jesus. And today is the day that we trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we bless Your name. And we thank You that You have given us new life. For those of us that have experienced this grace, have experienced this work, God, I pray that we would not trust in anything else but you. God, as we seek to live this day every day for you, God, there's going to be areas I have to repent of. There's going to be areas that I'm not fully following. God, you have invited me into this relationship. God, I don't need a better teacher. God, I need a Savior. And God, through your salvation, your Spirit now comes and teaches us. That's the best part about it. You offer both. But before anything, save us. God, I pray that we would give you glory for giving us new life, those who have trusted in you. And God, I pray that they would walk in a gracious life. Those who have not experienced a new birth, May today be the day. We trust in you now.